Working Class Audio is made possible by the support of Cali Audio, DistroKid, Sampley Audio, Audio Technica, Gearspace, and Grace Design. This is the Working Class Audio Podcast, Session 224. Working Class Audio, navigating the world of recording with a working class perspective. Here is your host, Matt Boudreaux. Thanks, Chuck. Hey, everybody. Welcome back to the Working Class Audio Podcast. This is session 224 you're listening to. My guest today is Frank Marchand. Frank is a recording engineer, mixer, producer, live sound engineer, and broadcast mixer who's worked on over 600 records, toured all over the world, and has been a part of four different studio spaces throughout his years. Still maintains a healthy touring schedule. He's worked with a wide variety of people, uh, touring with Calexico and Texas rockers, the Toadies. He's worked with Bob Mould. He's also worked with uh, New Orleans rockers, Cowboy Mouth, Annapolis natives, Jimmy Chicken Shack, Doom Metal founders, The Obsessed, Celtic creators of Celtic Grass, We Banjo 3. He works, obviously, with all types of music and uh, many bands you've never heard of, as he says in his bio. So looking forward to bringing you my interview with Frank Marchand, who comes to us from a hotel room in North Carolina while he's on tour. So Frank Marchand coming up here on the Working Class Audio Podcast. All right, pull up your coffee cups. I got a book I want to share with you. Chris Lee, who is a Working Class Audio supporter on Patreon, turned me on to this book. Chris, this is a great book. Thanks for that. Really enjoyed it. I downloaded it on Saturday morning, and by Sunday afternoon was done. I just... Just kept listening, just burned through it. I'll put a link in the show notes to the audiobook as well as the physical and the digital version. And uh, the book is called Atomic Habits by James Clear, an easy and proven way to build good habits and break bad ones. James kind of summarizes the whole thing by saying, habits are the compound interest of self-improvement, right? You know, if you put a little bit of money in, the, in a high interest savings account on a monthly basis, It's not going to be much at first, but over time, eventually it's going to grow and grow and grow and grow. Well, habits are like that and good ones and bad ones. So he talks specifically about getting in the mindset of not necessarily dismissing goals. Uh, Goals are the bigger picture. That's where you want to end up, right? I want my studio to be successful. I want to lose weight. I want to save money. I want to get out of debt, whatever. So what James talks about is it's what are the things, the the habits that lead up to that, what you do daily, a little bit each day, and that adds up to helping you achieve whatever goal that is. You know, it could be location sound people reaching out once a week to other location sound people. It could be studio owners who want more business or studio managers to make it a point of every day reaching out to one band or two bands by email or by phone. Uh, Same if you're a mix engineer or if you're in game sound, maybe you need to meet other colleagues on a regular basis. These habits can be daily, weekly, monthly, but do them consistently and do them without fail. And over the course of a year, if you've emailed or phone called a number of bands or you've had coffee with a number of people to network in hopes of bringing more work in, uh, then that habit of doing those things can lead up to good stuff. Same thing with bad habits, you know? 
if I eat those brownies that my wife tends to make once a week, I'm going to just blow up. So I'm not going to do that. So let's stick to good habits and check this book out. It'll be in the show notes. Email me, matt at workingclassaudio.com. Tell me what you think of the book. Most of you already know about Grace Design and have known about them for years. Uh, They've been around since 1994. It was started by the two brothers, Michael and Eben Grace, who still run the company to this day. And you already know that they make incredible sounding products for us all. What you might not know if you don't know them is that Michael and Eben are two of the nicest people on the planet. Easily approachable, very knowledgeable. You might have met them at a trade show and experienced this. Without a doubt, it's one of my favorite companies out there in the world of pro audio. You might have heard me a few times talking about the Grace 908 Atmos controller. I think the most elegant solution, if you're going to be doing Atmos, that is the best solution out there, as far as I'm concerned, hands down. And prior to that, I was using the Stereo 905 controller for many years. Not only that, but most recently, I have used their 108 mic pres to do the Room 219 combo jazz record that you might have heard me talk about. The point is, is that they check all the boxes for me. They're incredibly nice people. They make incredibly great products. They're located here in the United States in Lyons, Colorado, and employ a number of people. They're the epitome of a small business here in the U.S., and I just love that whole thing. So if you are in the market for mic preamps or instrument preamps or monitor controllers, this is the company to check out hands down. If you don't know about them, go to gracedesign.com, check them out. And if you're in the market for any of those products, you absolutely have to consider what they offer because what they offer is superior build quality and sound quality. And those of you who bought their products in the 90s that are still using them, you know exactly what I'm talking about. So check them out, gracedesign.com. I know the business of audio is a frustrating one sometimes. The audio part's pretty pretty fun, but it's the business of it and the career part of it that's a little challenging to many of us. I can completely empathize with that. And if you thought to yourself, God, I wish I could talk to somebody about this, you can do that. You could talk with me about it. As a matter of fact, you can book me for a coaching and consulting call over Zoom very simply. Just head on over to workingclassaudio.com. If you click on the menu button at the top of the menu, there is a link that says coaching and consulting with Matt. Super simple. Click on the link, book me in for an hour on a Zoom call, and we will discuss your particular situation, and I will help you get refocused, re-inspired, and figure out what is the best path forward for you. If your situation requires a little more extensive conversation, we can absolutely book a series of calls and, like I say, get you focused and get you moving forward. I've been there, and when you don't have anybody to talk to about it, it's a little frustrating. So head on over to workingclassaudio.com, click on the menu button, and book yourself in for a Zoom call with me. And we can sit down and chat, coffees in hand, ready to tackle the business of audio together. All right, let's get to it. Frank Marchand here on the Working Class Audio Podcast. Frank, welcome to the podcast. Thank you for having me. Yeah. So you're coming to us from a hotel in? Asheville, North Carolina. Ah, okay. And you're on tour right now. Yes, I am. I'm on tour with a really wonderful Irish band named Wee Banjo 3. The person that recommended you to me said that you are not only truly working class in every sense of the word, but that you handle everything from metal to bluegrass and everything in between. Is that is that accurate? 
Yeah, this past year, I had a number one Billboard record with Wee Banjo 3 on the Bluegrass charts. First ever Irish band to do that. The same time, they cracked the uh, the top five in the world charts. And then I released metal records on Relapse with a wonderful band called The Obsessed. I produced ongoing records with the touring New Orleans band Cowboy Mouth. So I've, you know, I'm kind of scattered in all directions at this point. And, and your talents go from not only studio, but to the world of touring as well. Are you doing front of house? Yes, I'm doing front of house now for the next 10 days. And then as an example, last year, I did 160 shows and still worked on 25 studio projects. Wow. And for those who listen to certain metal bands like Unorthodox, you are known as Frank the Punisher. Yes, I was given that name by a wonderful man named Joe Goldsboro from Baltimore because he seemed to think that I had an affinity for low end. (laughs) (laughs) Well, let's go back. Where did you grow up? I'm an army brat. So I kind of wherever my dad's tours landed us, I've lived in places like Colorado and Hawaii and Virginia Beach and Germany. And we ended up in Maryland as his last stay before he got out of the military. How old were you when, when that ended, when he when he got out of the military? When he got out of the military, that was in 1976. And I was in my junior year of high school, I guess. And we were in the Washington, D.C. area. From there, it was two years of high school where, because of my love of sports and playing soccer all over the place as a kid, I landed a spot on one of the fairly successful local soccer teams. And one of my buddies on the team played drums. And his band was looking for a bass player. And I had never, ever played an instrument in my life. And I convinced my dad to go to a famous music store here in the D.C. area called Chuck Levin's. And he bought me a bass. He just did it. Within about a year, I went from not knowing how to play anything to playing everything from Led Zeppelin to Yes in my high school band. And that's kind of how my music career got started, more or less. Do you think that your early experiences being an Army brat, moving around so much, that that taught you the ability to quickly meld into a new environment? Oh, absolutely. Being the new kid on the block, so to speak, you had to figure out where your place was and how to best get along with everybody. And that's why the the sports thing was so important, because it was all of a sudden a built-in infrastructure. And even with the band and music stuff later on in high school, you know, it was nice to get friendships that way as well. And besides, it was more fun because the girls would show up. (laughs) (laughs) At what point in your life did audio present itself as a legitimate possibility of being, you know, something you could do for a living? That happened probably... Let's see, after I graduated school, I worked for a small mob and pop store that sold a lot of blank media and like cassettes and um, videotapes and things like that. And I was there when the first CD players came out. And I remember we would sit and compare the vinyl. What you used to do back then is you would buy the record and you would record it to cassette so you could play the cassette 8 million times and preserve the album. So when CDs came out, it was like, wow, you could play this a million times and it will sound exactly the same. No matter what, you know, it was the old convenience over audio quality argument at the forefront. So after I worked my way off the sales floor in this mom and pop place, I did advertising. And the whole time I was still kind of tinkering, doing sound with my friends, local bands. And I just lied my way into a nightclub called The Bayou and said I knew how to do front of house sound. And I started doing both jobs for about a year until I got so burned out, I dropped the advertising job and did live sound for a bit until that killed me. And then I wanted to go to recording school and full sales 
admission department back, and this is the mid to late 80s, never called me back. I got my hearing test. So I went through the phone book from A to Z in the Washington area, tried to get a gig at a studio. And of course, they gave you the old, do you have experience? What have you done? And of course, I'm green and I say no. And so I ended up with the letter W because no one wanted to give me a job at a place called Washington Professional Systems, which is the professional division of Chuck Levins. And they were the place that was selling all of the pro gear to all of the studios in the Baltimore, Washington, Virginia area. So through that, I was, I was taken under the wing by a wonderful sound guru who I'm going to call Greg Lukens, who's a blind guy who designed all the PAs for Rush through a company called National Sound in the 80s. So he taught me a lot on weekends how to use the really high-end gear. And we would have seminars where he would teach me how to align tape machines and things like that. So with my connections through Washington Professional Systems, I started getting work as a local freelancer in all the studios in the area. So between the live thing where I would harness or try to get a clientele of bands that wanted to record in the studio, I would then go in on weekends and try and record them as best I could through a learning process, just flying by the seat of my pants. Did you say he was a blind guy? Yeah, he um, lost his eyesight at age nine in a, in a minibike accident. He apparently hit his head and crushed his optic nerve. So his insights are just unbelievable. He can walk into a room and tell you how the diffusers are working and where the air conditioning vents are. And it's just, it's insane, the ability for him to disseminate information about how 3D and audio really are one and the same. And it just, it really taught me a lot. But you say he really kind of taught you a lot about electronics and, and tape machines and such. Right. When I last worked for him, that was my last day job in the way early 90s. It was right when digital was really taking a foothold and analog was kind of being ushered out. Because of the place I worked at, I was lucky enough to really hear high-end converters. It was back when what was Avid called a studio designer, sound designer, and it was just a two-track editing format. And it opened my eyes to the possibilities of, of how you can manipulate audio in the computer and not have to lug around a 20-pound piece of reel of tape that changes sound over time. And just, again, the strength of what you could do with the computer really opened my eyes to where audio was going to go. What came first, live sound or front of house work for you or studio recording? Honestly, they've been hand in hand the whole time. Whenever I get bored in the studio, I go out on tour. Whenever I get burnt from being out on tour, I'm back in the studio. Every day, I'm in front of a set of monitors or a PA system one way or the other. <laughs> but back then, what, what came first for you then? It was still it was pretty 50-50 at that point because I had to go into the clubs to get work. Right. And then I had to you know have the results in the studio to get work from bands spreading word of mouth because... You know, in our business, word of mouth really is everything. Yeah. So if you're making your clients happy, you really want to try and have a repeat customer base. And that's how you grow your name in the business. Even today, you're only as good as your next gig. In your early days of being in the studio and or working live, doing live sound, how was your, in terms of survival, how did you manage that? Was there enough work to keep you fed and, and clothed and roof over your head? Or did you have to do other jobs and diversify outside of the world of music and sound? When I decided to go full-time freelance, it was spotty a little bit, but I would find work with bands that would want to do stuff and I would price my whatever daily rate would be in, you know, on top of whatever the day rate for the recording studio is. Or at a live sound gig, it would just be a flat fee to cover the show. 
I'm not going to lie in that. At that point, my wife, then girlfriend, you know, we would really try and trim living expenses as best possible. Because I didn't own a recording studio, I didn't have to worry about paying for equipment or gear at all because I was using other people's equipment. Mm-hmm. So it was just a matter of showing up and, and trying to do the gig as best possible with whatever tools were presented to you to get the job done relative to the facility or the PA or the club that you were trying to rock out in. Yeah. As far as what was bringing in more money then, was it an equal share once again, basically trying to figure out what's the stronger? In the beginning, in the beginning, I would say it was the live thing because for me to charge on top of a, a, an hourly studio rate, couldn't be too over the top because, again, my love of working with artists who are more cutting edge and who are more underdogs or indie or have a different kind of sound or a different attitude meant that they really didn't have a whole lot of cash to go around to begin with. Uh-huh. Generally, the bands that I've always been attracted to, it's always art over dollars. Yeah. So, you know, you had to do whatever you could do to, to want to get the project and then just make enough to be able to cover whatever your monthly nut was at that point. Now, this was all in the Washington area, right? Washington and Baltimore, yes. Okay, okay. So were you connected in any way to Discord Records or any of that DC hardcore scene? Oddly enough, I've worked with all those guys through the years. But back when that was really happening, because I was in the suburbs as a kid, I didn't have the DC connection directly or the Northern Virginia connection directly. Inner Ear is in Northern Virginia. So in D.C., just to cross over the the Potomac River is like going into a foreign country. So there was always a separation between the Discord thing and the Baltimore thing. Discord was more punk rock. Baltimore was more grunge. So I would gravitate towards that because that's where I was getting more work. And that was the music I kind of knew at that point. And this is not dissing Discords at all and records at all. But the sound of their albums really didn't do it for me. I was really into cleaner, more in-your-face kind of tones back then. So that was kind of what was leading me more into the, to the heavy metal scene or, or into like the grunge polish scenes coming out of Seattle at the time. Right. So that's kind of the direction I was going at that point. My palate hadn't been widened that much at, that, you know, at, that, at the beginning of what I was trying to do. Was there a time at which... Was there a band that that kind of puts your name on the map, so to speak, for for others to start coming in and the word of mouth thing to grow? Oh, that's a tough one. Honestly, I've never been good at playing the name game. Mm -hmm. And I've never really had a lot of time to do, just as an example, with the the presentation we're doing with your podcast. I'm so busy all the time. I have very little time to go online and try and find greater sources for knowledge or to find, as I would say, places that would offer a cathartic experience for those of us in the trenches of audio every day. So for me to be a big name dropper, I mean, I've just always done really consistent work and people in the area would recommend me to do different things. I mean, I've worked with Bob Mould for 10 years on three or four of his different records. I've done, you know, records with, with bands after they've been on major labels. I mean, I've never really gotten a huge break. Again, I guess it's maybe my aesthetic that I always try to to work with the underdog or the kids who want to learn or, you know, somebody who's trying to make a difference. The cookie cutter thing has really never been my cup of tea. Yeah. So having one person say that I've broken through with would be kind of tough. It's honestly, I can count on my hand, maybe four or five people who've truly tried to really give me a shot at bigger things. Because I, maybe I'm just too indie or maybe I'm too much of a threat and I know too much. I don't know. 
Maybe it's because I'm in D.C. and I refuse to move to Nashville or New York or the West Coast. Yeah. It could be just a straight up location thing. But although I've done sessions in New York and I've done sessions in Nashville and L.A., you have to be there a while. My mom lived in Austin for 30 years and I got to see, and this is not knocking the Austin scene, I got to see how protective these scenes are against outsiders coming in. So you have to rather live in these, in these environments for a while to get access to the work. And, you know, rightly so. People have to know that you're a lifer or that you're trying to support what they're trying to do, not just be there for the quick buck or, or the, the stardom, whatever little that is left anymore, who the hell knows. Again, a big name for me, it's always been a slow, just grinded out process to try and move from one level to the other more than anything else. And just take care of the clients and, and do the work and not worry Absolutely. about much else. And be fair about pricing relative to what the artists can afford. And to make sure that you don't buy so much gear that you make yourself go broke and make bad decisions. On that topic, to dissect that a little bit, how have you structured the world of the studio for you today? So do you have a studio? Do you have gear? What do you, how do you operate today? Through the years, I've accumulated equipment. I am now on my fourth studio, which I think is going to be my last one. My first studio I did was out of necessity in 1999. It was a small 600-square-foot building upstairs that had enough separation that I could record four or five people at the same time and it had a lounge and I did it because I had to pull my equipment out of my house because my son was born and I quickly learned that being a father and trying to do audio at the same time in the same room or building or house is just too much so I found a small place and moved all my gear out what I had done in the late 90s is I bought or went out and got a loan for a Pro Tools mix system because I learned quickly if you could you can mix anywhere if you have the right gear. So having a mix system meant that I could set up shop, you know, with those horrible 888 IO black boxes. I remember. Dismal, as dismal as they sounded. But I could record anywhere and put it. I put everything in a rack and I would show up at people's rehearsal spaces. I would show up at wherever they wanted to make music. And then I would bring the stuff home and mix. And that had to go. So I found a space in 1999, a small space, and I just kind of grew it out of that. I was fortunate that I didn't need to roll too much money back towards my house because my rent in my studio was low and I could afford to start buying new gear and upgrading as I went. And in that space, I probably did 100 or 200 albums and was there for, shoot, probably about 10 years. After that, I was lured by people who shall remain nameless to start a brand new facility that just like yourself, it was the big room and the big multi-million dollar build out. And it was a learning experience because I got to help design a great sounding place from the ground up. But then I also got to understand the pitfalls of now you're in a commercial space. You're not calling all the shots. You're not earning all the dollars that walk through the door. So now I'm sharing the monies again. And it became very difficult and I had a commute and it was just insanely stressful. So I went from there back to the, oh, let's build a studio with one of my friends in a warehouse, you know, the indie dream of the dusty warehouse spot. Mm -hmm. And I did that for three years, but I got tired of the parking being tough. The place didn't really have heat or air conditioning proper. And I had to go back to just having the place by myself where I could leave stuff set up all the time that I knew that where I left it is going to be when I get back. And it's no offense to my partners. It just made more sense for the way I work because between touring and working on 10 different projects at once, you just it's, it's too much to juggle when you have other people in the picture. My last three studios or two studios have been just by myself. And one, the building was sold out for my land, by my landlord, so I had to move again. 
And now my new spot, oddly enough, is about 100 feet from where I had the spot 15 years ago. And everything's been cruising along nicely because the landlords remembered me and allowed me to build out another spot. So I have like a, a small space that is invitational only, you know, with all my stuff in there. And I can record loud bands and five people with separation at once and continue to do my thing and keep all of the money. Hey, our friends over at DistroKid have created the DistroKid app for Android, which allows you to do some key things such as check your stats from Apple and Spotify, edit release metadata, upload new releases, and a host of other features. And remember, WCA listeners get 30% off your first year at DistroKid. And if you just head on over to workingclassaudio.com slash WCA30, you can follow the link, get your 30% off, and be off to the races. So check our friends out at DistroKid and make sure and get your 30% off by going to workingclassaudio.com slash WCA30. In the days of you hauling around Pro Tools rigs to people's rehearsal studios, those are kind of challenging situations. I don't know about how the rehearsal studios are out on the East Coast, but at least here on the West Coast or in the Bay Area, you know, there's always... You got the hip hop hip hop group on one side of you, and then you've got the metal band on the other side of you, and the low end is just constantly bombarding you. Was that a bit of a challenge when you were working? Oh in those no, absolutely. Spaces? We would. Um, oh, it was. We would have to find time to do stuff, find the odd days, the odd hours of the weeks, you know, when no one else was making racket. Fortunately, musicians who are part time make all their most of their racket on Friday nights and through the weekends. Or at nights after work. So if you get in there during the day early on, you could combat a bunch of that. But it's not ideal acoustic situations. Because of my background in live sound, I'm very quick to adjust to acoustic environments no matter, no matter what they are to try and make whatever you're doing work. Mm-hmm. You know, And as long as you don't make things too loud in the room or excite the room tones or the room modes, then you can monitor pretty lowly and still get a good representation of what's going on without the room getting in the way of your recording. Mm -hmm. Just like live sound, there's a point at which you could put too much energy into the room and then the room modes start taking over and, you you know, you're getting comb filtering, you're getting all sorts of audio evilness that just doesn't help what's coming out off the stage. So it's the same kind of philosophy. As you tour today, do you carry around any kind of recording scenario with you to allow for multi-track recording from front of house? My laptop has now, through the years, Avid has managed to start to play a little more fairly with interfaces that you can now access and I can record straight to my laptop, multi-track right off of the boards. Yamaha does it. The Behringer slash Midas consoles will do it. So it's a lot easier to multi-track straight off of stuff if you have the the right software to do it. Even with software like Reaper, it's just important to get the capture of the waveform off of the preamps. And then you've got a pretty good situation that you can use for a live recording. I mean, it's always helpful to throw room mics up because you want to get the crowd and make it a more live experience. I mean, my template for live recordings will always be, believe it or not, Frampton comes alive. So it's just you want it to sound like an interactive live recording, at least in my world. So if you have a decent laptop and a decent program, you can pretty much do that a lot easier than schlepping around several hundred pounds of preamps and mic splitters. So it's a lot easier today. Who have been your mentors of note over the years that you can cite? No one talks about this guy anymore, but I'm going to throw his name out there. I've still seen no interviews with this guy. His name is Max Norman. Max Norman had his real good run in the late 70s, early 80s. And he was a metal guy who did like Ozzy Osbourne records and things like that. What I really liked about Max Norman records is just like Bob Clearmountain albums 
is that the clarity and the separation was just unbelievable. Anytime you could put one of his records or Bob Clearmountain's records on for that matter, they would just sound different and just cleaner and better. Kind of like who's the guy who did all the Steely Dan albums? John Roger Black Nichols. Right yeah. So his records were like sometimes too clean, but the clarity is what always intrigued me about certain genres of music. And I am, I've always been a fidelity kid because when my dad was in the military, he did a tour of Vietnam. And, and one year he brought home from Hong Kong this huge pioneer stereo system with the dual turntable and all this stuff. And I'm eight years old and he's letting me sit and listen with him to Sinatra records and to jazz records. And it was from that point I had a pretty good template or imprint of full spectrum sound. So it always kind of stuck with me even to this day. I'm a big fan of you want to have really good deep lows and really crystal clear highs. And however you can achieve that, that's kind of been my aesthetic, just in a quick nutshell. Mm. So over the years, how have you managed to do the work-life balance thing as far as, you know, you mentioned you had kids and relationships. So how have you managed that? What have you learned and what could you pass on to others? To have a family and to do full-time audio is exhausting to the nth degree because you're always of two minds. It's kind of like when you're on tour, you're in tour mode. When you come home, you're in home mode. It's a different headspace. It's a different set of emotions. Running late sessions where you come home and you're just exhausted and you have no choice but to, to help your wife with your son. I was even a soccer coach during a stretch for about four or five years for some of his soccer teams. So to go and try and do sessions till all hours on weekends and then have to get up at seven in the morning to go to a soccer tournament. Sleep is is a something that you just aren't used to or don't even have a chance to experience for many years of your life. I guess you could say in the audio business in general, when you're recording all the time as well, sleep, you know, if the vocalist gets hot at three in the morning, you have to record that take. You can't not record it. You can't scheduling only gets you so far when you're dealing with the creative process. That's part of the reason why I wanted my own studio is to stop the clock watching end of it. So that way people would be more relaxed and be more productive and not stress out because the stress and boredom in the studio is the antithesis of, of crap recording. So you always have to make sure everybody's motivated and we're being productive as possible. So to have that kind of energy in the studio and then come home and to be a good dad and to take the trash out and mow the grass, it's really tough. I honestly couldn't have done it if my wife wasn't as strong of a person as she is. I mean, we've been married 22 years. She used to date me and fall asleep in vocal booths all over the place when we were kids back in our 20s. So she kind of knew what she was getting into. And I, I got to give her kudos for putting up with my butt for this many years to be allowed to go on tour and, and to help out. My son is now a sophomore in college. And fortunately or unfortunately, depending on the way you look at it, he's a math kid and being away from, far away from music, I'm cool with that. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I'm, I'm the only one in musical, really, in my side of the family. So it's kind of weird to, to have a career in this when sometimes it's hard to explain the pitfalls of being in the studio or being on tour to family members. But, you know, I'm just I'm grateful that my wife has nothing to do with the music business. So I have that kind of balance in life. Yeah, it's super important when it comes to money. What has been your overarching philosophy in making sure that there's enough of it and it's not overspent? And how have you dealt with it? And have you had any major stumbles in the years prior to this? There have been plenty of stumbles. The hardest part about being freelance is you don't have a buffer to A, negotiate your pricing or your availability like a manager. 
I, what I often do, and this is just a result of a bad habit of working 100 hours a week from now until when I started this, is I always overbook myself. Dealing with artists in the community is not a, a, a 100% scheduled thing. People cancel all the time for all sorts of reasons. So what I've learned to do is just start to overbook myself and then deal with the consequences on the back end if things clash or collide. Again, I've been very lucky that I have a really high percentage repeat rate with my clients. So after a while, they kind of learn the game that my time is valuable and not to come in and waste it just as I, out of respect, would not waste their time by trying out a new microphone or a new procedure. Going fast in the studio, getting to the, to the end result, to me, is, is always been incredibly important. Because again, boredom and waiting around, and if you put too much space in between when you've tracked a record and when you mix it, people lose interest in it. You want to keep the excitement up as much as possible because we're in the home run business. Every day I go in the studio, I have to hit a home run. I have to track the best vocal. I have to get the best guitar sound. I have to make the drummer happy. You know, when it comes to mix time, you have to have a mix that sounds amazing and try to, to rival people's expectations. So keeping momentum and keeping incredibly busy all the time is both better financially and it's just it's better because you want to touch more projects, which means on the horizon you have greater sources of income. You have greater possibility to work with better artists. So managing money, it's always tough because there are periods where I could be up to 10 grand owed back money or back pay and it's just the nature of people or artists, either the label didn't come up with the cash or the investors backed out or the club gigs that they had fell through. So the immediate cash wasn't available. You just have to kind of understand that that's part of the deal. I've been very lucky that 99% of my clients pay up and I'm very fair with my pricing and I'm very upfront about, hey, if we're going to try and do this, it's going to cost you this kind of budget to make sure that everybody's on the same page. And again, with that kind of pay rate and the fact that I don't ever collect that often, that's why I've really been able to do this for a while. Yeah, and having indie clients who pay as the work is completed is also very handy as opposed to dealing with label clients or where there's an, a, a bureaucracy involved in you getting paid. I mean, you probably saw it as, as a, a fairly large studio owner dealing with major labels. You don't get paid sometimes between six and eight months or a year which just crushes your cash flow. Walk me through the process of if you have, if there's a client that you want to work with, how do you get that client? How have you been successful in attracting people to you and, and getting that work? First off, I only work with people whose music I like. Anytime I've ever done anything for, because it might pay well, it has turned around and just turned into a horrible nightmare and became so unenjoyable. I vowed never to do it again. So if there's an artist that I've heard from or I saw at a bar or I saw at a show, I'm not shy about just going over and talking to the folks and seeing what they're about. Nowadays, everybody has some sort of portable recording system in their, in their rehearsal space, and they have the ability to, to capture ideas on their cell phones. So people are not unaware of what the recording process is because the technology has come down and, and been very available to the common player. Back, you know, in the 70s, 80s, early 90s, you had to go into a proper studio and it was like smoke and mirrors and the man behind the curtain. So you had to really define what was going to happen as the process. Now people are more educated in the process. So what you have to do is kind of just like any kind of job interview, you have to find out what the currency of the language of the artist is to see if, A, you have the same kind of vibe together 
be what their kind of goals are? Are they in it just to, to do a vanity record where they just want to capture their band at time? Or do they want to try and do something that is going to be creative and kind of pushes the boundaries a little bit? Do you, you have to get a sense of, is this the kind of band that's going to tour on this record that you're going to try and do for them? Is there a marketing behind it? Are labels kind of interested? How well does the band represent the scene? There's a whole lot of questions that I like to ask to get a feel for what they expect out of the recording. And then I always tell them, look, ask me any question you want. Even when I'm in the studio and we're tracking or recording records, I'm like, guys, this is, I'm very simple about all this. Just ask questions. I have no problems explaining what's going on. Because the more educated everybody is in the room, the better the records sound, the better things go down. So to constantly be on the alert for new bands, it all comes down to, A, if I have the time to go out into the clubs and, and put the time in, or it comes through like a uh, recommendation from a fellow artist, which again is how I get a lot of my work, just you know how it is in this business. So when somebody calls me, I'm very open and, and we have try to have as good a conversation as possible. I really try to catch their shows or I really try and, and catch a rehearsal because I want to see what the guys are like playing their instruments in a non-stressful situation because God knows the studio can get pretty darn stressful. <laughs> About a year and a half ago, I signed up for Sampley.app and I have to report back and say that I'm completely thrilled with it and it's working out quite well. It gives me the ability to upload mixes and masters to the website and provide a super pro looking interface for my clients. They can drop comments in the timeline. They can listen on any device. They can listen to it in high res. And if I want them to pay for the mix or master before they download it because of the Stripe integration, I can set that up. There's also Dropbox integration, which allows me to quickly create a folder in my Dropbox, which automatically syncs with Samply, makes it much more simple. You should check it out for yourself, but there's a deal to be had. So use the code WCA20. Go to Samply.app or Samply.app. Use the code WCA20, get 20% off, and you'll be off to the races. It's a fantastic tool that I think you're going to enjoy and will definitely make you look a lot more pro when you're delivering files to clients. Skip that whole business where you send it to them over Dropbox. That looks totally amateur at this point. Use Samply.app and use that code WCA20, and I think you're going to be really thrilled. Sampley.app. Check it out. How do you convince a band that you're the guy for them? I usually, I, at this point, I have a fairly large enough discography that I've touched. I'll tell them to reference, you know, five or six artists that I've worked with in their genre. Yeah. You know, either on Spotify or iTunes or whatever. I mean, here's the crazy part. I've done records that have had over millions of plays on Spotify, but no one knows who the artist is which could get me into, we could go on a whole nother tangent about the whole internet thing and the pros and cons of how that has helped or hurt our industry. But to get bands to kind of get a feel for what I do, again, I have a fairly large back catalog of stuff that I've touched that has made it online or through record distributors. So we can use that as like a starting point. Yeah. And then we can talk about band influences or artist influences about where they see themselves wearing, where they want to go. And then we start talking about aesthetics and style, things like that. Are you fairly proactive with reaching out to bands online? If somebody contacts me, absolutely. But I generally don't have enough time to do that. I wish I did. And the one thing that I've discovered about this business that, be it good or bad, is if a band has a manager and I try to reach out to the band through the manager, generally that means it's a dead-end street because managers only care if you're like Brendan O'Brien or you know Matt Wallace or you've had a huge number one hit. They don't care about anybody they've never heard about. Right. I have never I have never met a manager who's given me the time of day to this 
point 30 years into my career. Zero. <laughs> That's you interesting. Know, A&R people are just as bad. So, you know, I, I, that part of the business, man, I we could talk for hours about how disrespectful these folks are about those of us who do what we do every day. Yeah. Well, I've had my own problems with management as far as being an artist over the years. So I totally get what you're saying. Right. In the grandest sense, what we do is we're there to service the client, to service the artist. There's some producers, which has been the latest trend, who write the whole song and go find a voice to plug into the song, and boom, that's how they work. Because I think in, in trying times, pop music is the default setting for most music. But I've always been the producer who likes to collaborate with the artist, who likes to find out what they want to do and try and help them with their vision and try to save themselves from being too cliched or to try to save themselves from not knowing where they want to go and give them more direction. I mean, that's the kind of the joy I get at this whole thing. From a financial perspective, have you, have you generally operated on just a cash basis or is there the concept of points ever entered into the equation for you? And to this day... 30 years in, I've signed maybe five or six point contracts total, and I've seen no money from any of that. Zero. Even though the records have done okay, but just being a, a service for hire seems to work out best. Does anybody make money on the back end anymore? Not that I I'm mean, aware of. You know, not unless you're the 0.5% of the folks who are in the big labels who are being pushed all over the world, that just doesn't happen. And even then, if you were lucky enough to get points on something like that, you would have to wait the whole rest of your life to see it and then sue <laughs> them to get your money. So just working with the straight cash thing, I don't even do spec deals anymore. It's like, dude, if you want to come into my studio, it's this, this so much for this. I have all these drums and all these guitars and all these amps and my 200-some-odd guitar pedal collection. You have at it. Use whatever you want. Let's do what we need to do to make your record and just pay me what we agreed on and then let's get on with it. Do you have a website that people can find out more about you? Yeah, waterfordigital.com. The one thing that I'm really bad at is the Facebook stuff and the you know, online stuff because honestly, I'm doing so much work all the time. I don't have time to maintain it. And that's where I fall flat and be, be that good or bad. It's just the part of the business that's always tough when I'm, if you're not recording, you ain't doing <laughs> so that's right. You know, it's it's hard to do the other end of it. I've been blessed that I haven't had to worry about the other end of it too much. I mean, I would love to be able to one day to write for a magazine or to like be on a gear review board or something because I have every plugin known to mankind, and it, there's not very many periodicals or blogs that are really good at that anymore. So you know, if it happens, great. If it doesn't, I'll just continue one day to maybe give this information out to a bunch of kids in front of me. Who knows? So waterforddigital.com, we will put a link to the show notes in that and any other resources you think we should put in the show notes? No, I mean, I have my Facebook page with my name okay, and slash, slash producer or whatever. But, you know, it's I, I again, I've been very loyal to my customers who've all been word of mouth. So the internet thing, I haven't had to do a whole lot of, thank God. Well, that's kind of nice. And I don't know if, uh, if you get a chance, uh, look up T-Bone Burnett's keynote address at South by Southwest that happened yesterday or the day before. Really? It's a very yeah. fascinating uh, thing that he had to say. And it's, you know, I'm not making any grand declarations here, but it definitely right. calls into question how we deal with our, our, our digital world on Facebook and such. And so that's, right. I think you're doing great. I mean, if you're working, then... That's great. As my wife puts it, I'm unhappy if I'm not busy and I'm unhappy if I'm too busy. So, you know, that's the nature of what we do. Also, we didn't mention to the audience that we, I think we discovered that uh, we actually were on a panel together 
at one of the tape ops, a mixing yes. in the box panel. And it was you and me and Ross Hogarth. And I can't remember the others on the panel. I'd have to right. look it up. It was in New Orleans. Yeah, that was that was a while ago. I honestly, I miss tape op conferences because I felt like that was kind of a communal thing for all of us to go and, and be a, together. <laughs> all of us who don't see what the sunlight is anymore. <laughs> well, Frank, travel safe and enjoy your time on the road. And thank you so much for being on the show. Thank you, Matt. I really appreciate it. Frank Marchand here on the Working Class Audio Podcast. Thanks for tuning in with me today. Our friends over at Cali Audio have just introduced the brand new LP UNF system, which is meant to give you everything you need from a studio monitor in a package that you can basically set up anywhere. And the system is specifically designed for your desk. So no matter how else you're using your desk, reflections from the drivers to the desk to your ears are accounted for giving you a perfectly clear picture of your mix that you can rely on to translate well. Whether you're putting them on stands behind your desk, on a desk away from walls, on a desk against a wall, on a desk on speaker stands away from the walls, there's a number of configurations and they have settings on the back to accommodate all of that and more. And if price is a concern, never fear. They're priced at $299. That's right, pretty affordable. Head on over to caliaudio.com and check out the new LP UNF. And I want to thank everybody that's been involved with the show today. That includes Anne-Marie Plow on the editing, Cliff Truesdale on the Working Class Audio theme music, and the lovely voice of Mr. Chuck Smith. That's right. Uh, spread the word. Tell all your friends. Appreciate you listening. Continue to do so. And, of course, until next time, take care. Hey, I know many of you are aware of this, but for those of you that aren't aware... Working Class Audio sponsors the forum over at gearspace.com called Audio Life. And quite simply put, it's a place where audio professionals can go to talk with other audio professionals about things other than audio gear, including life hacks, work-life balance, health and hearing loss. You know, if you want to talk with other audio professionals who can identify with what your lifestyle is like and how it relates to things going on in the world outside of audio, this is a great place to go and check out. So head on over to gearspace.com, check out Audio Life, many of the same topics that we discuss here on the show on gearspace.com. So check that out.